This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, JT and Jen. Hey, hey Kyle. Kyle. I didn't say your last name no. that time. Did you notice that? Yeah, I wasn't ready for that. Yeah. First time. We're hundreds of episodes in, uh-huh. and, I, and I, I dropped those last names. But what I also want to drop is a thank you to our sponsor for this season. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just was, that was too clean. I was too proud of myself for that. We yeah. want to, but we do want to thank our sponsor for this season, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. You may be listening to Knowing Faith and thinking, huh, I want more of this kind of stuff, but I'm not sure that seminary would be right for me. Well, Southern Seminary has created sbts.edu slash explore, specifically for Knowing Faith listeners to help them discover the right degree for their goals. This online tool will help you consider the theological training you have now, factor in what more you want to accomplish, and explore with you the Southern Seminary degree that will prepare you to do even more for the kingdom of Christ. Whether you're exploring the idea of theological training, we feel called to full-time ministry, you can get personalized guidance at sbts.edu slash explore. Listen, patrons. If Okay, now, I always have to do this. If you're listening to this in January, well, this actually went out to our patrons in December. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash knowingfaith. You get early stuff. You get bonus stuff. It's, it's fun. Trust me. But for the patrons who are listening to this, thank you. Thanks, patrons. You guys are awesome. You guys help make this happen. You help support the podcast. We wouldn't be able to do what we're doing without you guys. And we wanted to try to hit all of your questions, which means we got to move fast. Okay? I didn't want to give you a prompt. Throw out your questions. We'll get to them. And then not deliver on that. So we got them. It's seven pages of So, Jen, we have to have a conversation with you. Can you move fast, Jen? No banter today. I can do it. I can do it. (laughs) I'll cut out the banter. It's going to kill me, but I'll do it. All right. Here we go. We're going to start with Rebecca. Rebecca, thank you for all the guys. Uh, thank you. Whoa, thank it's going you. great Whoa. so far, everyone. <laughs> that was not Rebecca's fault. Rebecca. It's probably going to be fine. Rebecca, that's not your fault. That was me. Okay. Rebecca says, thank you for all you guys do to bring solid grounded theology to all of us. Do you have recommendations for books, podcasts, or resources for doing something similar, but age appropriate for older kids? Kind of past the basics into the deeper discipling of older elementary and middle school, reading their own Bible, but struggling to understand literately to know Jesus and wanting to go deeper, but still needing guidance. We listen to Knowing Faith together occasionally, but he still needs me to pause and explain pretty frequently. Thanks. Do we know any resources that would be good for older kids? Yeah, I think um, the Bible Project is great for kids. Well, really for kids of just about all ages, but in particular for kids who they're wanting to be taken seriously in tone, uh, but it's still visual and engaging. And so, yeah, I think the Bible Project kind of can't beat it. And then I would I would do my best to to keep them involved in doing adult things with you and helping mm-hmm. them through it because children are always asking, what does it look like to be a mature fill in the blank, citizen, um, adult, whatever, and in this case, believer. And so when we include them in the spaces where mature believers are 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 hanging out or where we're trying to become mature believers, then they understand themselves as part of something bigger. I'm not a yeah. huge fan of resources that are that are geared specifically to middle schoolers and high schoolers, although they can be useful. But I think just as a general rule, um, let your parenting impulse be to welcome middle schoolers and high schoolers into adult spaces and help them with the content. So you'd be against a teen study Bible I had with a skateboarder on the front of it that I never read. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> I believe so you got hip. saved in college. Yeah. So yes. It's, yeah, it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, I agree with Jen there. I mean, and honestly, so a couple of things that, that are said here is like, you know, you say in the question, you're having to stop and explain exactly. Mm-hmm. That's exactly. gold. That's what you're supposed to be doing. 
if if your middle school or teenage student already knows everything that they're learning about the church or Jesus or whatever it might be, then we're missing it. The call is to call them into something greater, into learning and into deeper, deeper learning about who Jesus is. That's good. Alana asks, is the language about God being father and son literal or figurative or both? Well, Alana, this is a good question. If in the question you're asking, when it says that God is father or God is son, is God the father a father and is God the son a son, then I, I don't know that literal or figurative would be either of the words I would use to describe it. I would say God the Father and God the Son, uh, They have re- God has revealed himself as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. We refer to God the Father and God the Son in that way because it's who the persons of the Trinity have revealed themselves to be. It's how they have revealed themselves to be. Namely, that God is Father and he is eternally unbegotten, meaning there was He's never been born, he's never been made, never been created, and he is the fount of divinity, right? God the Son is eternally begotten as opposed to the Father. So his relationship to the Father is a filial relationship, filial meaning sonship relationship. So God the Father, God the Son. And so, yes, is God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Yes. How do we know that? Well, that's who God has told us he is. Why has God revealed himself that way? Well, God has revealed himself that way because it is who he is, and it is a language that we understand. Those are both true. JT, am I off here? No. I finally taught you everything I know. Good job. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That's the kind of stuff we don't have time for. Mm -hmm. Anything to add to that? No, that was really good. If I was going to say anything else, I would just say there's two kinds of knowledge about God theologically. So to your point, Kyla, I don't know that I would use figurative or literal language when we talk about God the Father and the Son, we're using theological language, which are both figural and literal. And and, and Bavink helps, not just Bavink, but he talks about an archetypal knowledge of God. This is the knowledge of God that God himself only possesses. And that's both a true and a full knowledge. In human terms, we possess what he calls an ectypal or an anthropological. Like we have a, a finite knowledge of God, which means if God's knowledge of himself is both true and full, our knowledge of God is true, but not full because of our finitude and his infinitude. Yes. That's good. Jennifer, I'm lead, not you, Jen. <laughs> that sounded like I was speaking directly to you. It's like, wow, that was, we just got but the, formal. But, <laughs> but the question, dad? what's happening right now? <laughs> but the question is for you. Uh, uh, Jennifer asks, I'm leading a group of women through Jen's God of Deliverance study and notice how Moses' story is an inverse of Joseph's. Joseph arrives in Egypt as a slave, rises to power in Pharaoh's court, saves the Egyptians from death, brings God's people into Egypt. Moses begins life in Pharaoh's house, is lowered to be a slave identifying with his people, brings death to the Egyptian, and leads God's people out of Egypt. Are we ever at risk reading too much into parallels, types, significant numbers, and drawing conclusions that weren't intended as we attempt to comprehend and interpret on our own? Oh, I love this question. Okay, so first of all, great job n- noticing the flow of the text. So my my first response is you should be looking, most of us should be looking for more parallelism, not less, um, because that's the way that the authors wrote in the Old Testament. Um, I heard someone say something spicy. I don't think it was Kyler JT about what good is a chiasm ever done to anyone. Um, <laughs> uh, but I love that. I, I've heard you guys say, Say stuff like that before, um, and and I actually I've landed on an answer. So a, a chiastic structure is a you know it's an it's a sort of an inverse parallelism. You can look it up. It's common, and actually what you're describing here would be an example of that, where the story moves inward and then outward again along parallel lines. Um, 
and there are scholars who would um, argue that um, Genesis through Deuteronomy are a giant chiasm. And so you might say, well, who cares? Well, you and I have copies of the Bible, so we care less about it than someone who was listening to the Bible being, you know, to, the, to these words being read to them. They're memory hooks. They're ways for people to remember the story. That's the same thing with the numbers and the types. They're, they're, they're memory hooks at minimum. I'm, they, they may be more than that, but they are at least that. So we should, we should value them because that's what they're put there for. They're to help us remember the structure of the stories as a whole. Um, now, can you overplay your hand on these? Yeah, 100%. Um, you should use them as a tool, but they should not become an obsession, for lack of a better word. Um, you don't necessarily need to go searching for them as much as you need to recognize them when they turn up. So I would say um, have a heightened awareness about them, but don't develop a weird fascination with them, and you should be great. Love it. Austin asks, why do you think that in the new creation there will be no darkness, Revelation 21, 22 through 25, yet in the first creation before there was sin, God created darkness and light. First John 5 says there is no darkness in God, but then why did God create night in the first place? Okay, so Austin, these are good questions. There's a little bit of movement here in terms of how the concept of darkness is being deployed and how the concept of night is being deployed. Keep in mind, creation, uh, the separation between night and day, the sun and the moon, these are created orders. It's an explanation of the cosmos. When we get to the new creation in Revelation 21, it's not that we're not getting a cosmic explanation. It's just, it's not for the same goal. It's not the same end. The end of Genesis is different than the end of Revelation, meaning the goal of Genesis 1 is different from the goal of Revelation 21. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say this. The, the Revelation 21, 25, when it says, and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. I don't think that we're to understand this primarily as a some sort of commentary on what the, the structure of the cosmos will be there. I think we're supposed to uh, understand it as the fulfillment of the unending seventh day Sabbath rest. Mm -hmm. There was not supposed to be an end to the seventh day in creation. It was supposed to be an unending seventh day. Uh, and you can notice in Genesis that Genesis 2, 3 is one of the only, uh, it's the only day that doesn't have a, there was an evening, there was morning at the seventh day. There's no mm -hmm. conclusion to it. So I don't think Revelation 22 is, is telling you, maybe, maybe there will be no actual night there. Maybe that's true. I think that what's in play here is a theme that is being woven together all the way from the very beginning and now coming to its proper conclusion that in heaven, heaven is the unending Sabbath day with the Lord forever. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily know that it's going back to say, yeah, there's not going to be like, you're not going to sleep. You're not going to, you know, there's not going to be moon and stars. I don't know that that's what's happening here. I think that what we're seeing is that we're living forever in the glory of God. His, his, his glory is so radiant. We don't need any other lights. And it's an unending Sabbath rest, meaning it's where you want to be. It's not full of scary, dark things like a broken world is. So that's Kyle, my Kyle, that was such a good answer. I loved it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, it's all right. <laughs> Brittany. Brittany says, thanks for all you do in this podcast. I love it more and more each season. You've taught me all, or you've taught me so much. Thank you, Brittany. My question regarding Genesis 3.24, what happened to the garden, the cherubim, and the flaming sword after Adam and Eve left? What happened to the tree of life or tree of knowledge and good and evil? I have an idea here, but I want to let Jen go. You, Jen, you got to answer this before I give my idea into the etherwebs. Uh, I have no idea. I don't, <laughs> well, that's mine too. The Bible doesn't say, so I don't yeah. know. So that, that is the right answer. Like that's where I think where we're safest. 
I, I've got to, I, so I'm wondering though about your work, Jen, between Genesis and Hebrews. Mm-hmm. And when I think about the Garden of Eden, I think of like a tabernacle, like a, right. a, a heavenly, this is a heavenly picture of the tabernacle on earth. And that's where Jesus goes. He ascends yeah. into the heavenly places, which is not the tabernacle made by human hands, but the, the tabernacle that's in heaven. Could we say in some strange, like spatial, I don't even know how to conceive of this, that it's in heaven? Well, let's talk about this because this points back actually to the question that Kyle just answered. Um, And it's talking about like, what's our first impulse when we ask a question about these particular portions of scripture. And many scholars would argue that our first impulse before we look for what happened to the literal place is what is the typological or the spiritual thing that we're supposed to be taking from the story. I mean, you could speculate for days about what happened to the literal Garden of Eden. Um, But I do think in a typological sense that the, the more important thing for us to nail down is what JT is now getting to. It's, well, what was that pointing to? Uh, mm-hmm. And where else do we see that concept? So in the same way that that Kyle was doing that exercise with the, the role of light in the created order, um, you know, we can do the same thing when it comes to the garden. The garden is, and it's a sanctuary. That's the, you know, the language around it is pointing to the language of sanctuary. So, right. and then you see it typified in the tabernacle and in the temple and in the descriptions um, elsewhere of um, God's throne room. So yes, I think we should say, gosh, I don't know what happened to the physical trees or the location um, and it must not matter a whole lot or we'd have more information on it. Although it can be interesting to think about. I don't want to say like, what a dumb thing to ask a question about, but there are some things I can know. And that's how this scene was pointing toward a greater truth that finds its fulfillment elsewhere. What do you think? That's good. That's exactly what I was kind of like trying to aim for and get at. So, I mean, yeah, you said it better than I could. I like it. I love that. Also consider that maybe, maybe it's still here and it's just not accessible to our eyes, that it exists on a different dimensional plane. Do you mean sort of like that place that Wonder Woman lives, that island that you can only get to if you... <laughs> uh-huh, but, but real. Oh, okay. Um, Kyle just went round the bend. <laughs> um, <laughs> Matt, Madison, Madison says, what is a theological belief or tradition that you used to hold to firmly but changed your mind, or at least you're not, no longer as confident? What's a theological belief tradition that you used to hold to firmly but changed your mind, or at least you are no longer as confident in? Yeah, I can give a basic one. I don't think this one's like incendiary. I, I still believe that the model for baptism in the Bible in the New Testament is immersion uh, following conversion. I believe that. I think that's what the Bible says. When we launched Mosaic, we were uh, we, we were a one practice, one reception church, meaning we practiced believers' baptism and we only received new members into our church who had been baptized following their conversion. We are now a one practice, dual reception, which means we receive people who have been baptized as infants as long as they were baptized in a Trinitarian Christian tradition. We receive that baptism. We don't require them to be baptized following conversion for membership in the life of our church. We do require them to be believers who demonstrate fruit in keeping with faith and repentance, but we don't require them to be re-baptized again. This is a position that I would have not held five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago. The more and more I looked at it, the more and more I thought about the disagreement between scholars, the more and more I looked at the history of the church, and the more and more I looked at the missiological setting of Christianity in the global West, the more and more I realized I thought 
that maybe I was holding this too tightly. Um, so we still practice believer's baptism. That's the only method of baptism we practice, but we will receive infant baptism. And five years ago, I would have been the most staunch defender of saying, no, 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 absolutely 100%. Uh, you should be baptized following your conversion, even hmm. if you have been baptized as an infant. So changed my, I changed my view on that. Hmm. I have so Anybody many questions for you right now. It's getting canceled. <laughs> yeah, I'm going can- to cancel you for that one. <laughs> Thank you. For me, I mean, this is a long time ago, uh, and there's been lots of change my mind on it. I'm sure we will again, uh, but it would be unlimited atonement. I held that before I went to seminary and changed my mind. Yeah, I think that's the same one for me. I but on this one, like I've been so I actually I want to be candid with our listeners. I have a number of these, but um, mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell you what all of them are because you would cancel me. Probably you might. It's not worth my time. But the issue of free will, the issue of free will. I I went from Arminian to Calvinist, and I am still. I would still call myself a Calvinist. I'd still call myself Reformed but I am not as hard line on things as I was when I initially made my pendulum swing. Um, and I don't mean that, I, it's more like the, the way I try to talk about it. Um, I felt like there was too great of a de-emphasizing of human agency sometimes in the way that people talked about things. Um, and so I try to hold the language between um, what God does and what man does with more of the, the tension that i believe I'm reading in the scriptures, but still I'm, I'm a Calvinist. There you go. That's good. Jean, I don't know if this is Jean or John, you know, it can go both ways. So I'm going to say Jean or John, thank you guys for the amazing work. Love this podcast. I've been wrestling with post-millennialism, amillennialism, and premillennialism eschatology and have been leaning towards post. I know it's not an essential part of our faith, but I was wondering what you guys can comment on this and any good resources as well. You know, I'll, I'll tell you my dad's joke. Uh, whether you're post, all pre, we're all pan millennialists. It's all going to pan out anyways in the end. <laughs> isn't it? Uh... Bang. Thank you, Joe Worley. Uh, yeah, post millennialism. I'll tell you this I think uh, post millennialism is the least viable of the views. I'm being honest with you. Come to us for honesty. I'm being honest with you. I, Gene, I think it's the least viable of the views. Um, I, I, we could do a whole episode on that. Maybe we'll do a whole season one day on, on eschatology or maybe a whole oh. episode. Jen is wincing. Uh, maybe we'll do I an episode. I just tried to avoid that in our previous question, so no. A mini-series. Uh, I myself am an amillennialist, and uh, JT, do you call yourself a premillennial? Are you a premillennialist? I feel like I go back and forth, not between like a premillennialism that would be more characterized in some dispensational circles, but a historic premillennialist, which is more kind of an early church, third, fourth century. There was a lot of, they call it keelism, um, but sometimes I lean amill too. It really depends on what side of the bed I got out of that day, and I and like your dad's joke. With. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, well, you know, something like that. It, it, yeah. it really does depend who I'm having a conversation with. I want them to have the yeah. same wrestle I'm having. And I, and I in no way mean this pejoratively, but ultimately our eschatology ends with the idea that one day Jesus is going to wipe every single tear from our faces. Yeah. Death will be no more, and we will have resurrection life, eternal life forever. Yep, yep. that's good. Uh, post-millennialism, Gene, I just would say this. If you want to be a post-millennialist, great. Go be a post-millennialist. I, I don't know that postmillennialism is the most viable, both in terms of biblically and also just historically, how it plays itself out. I think that most postmillennialists have an overrealized eschatology. They think that more can be done than can be done. We need a 
an, an intervention from above. And uh, I think post-millennialism is a little too optimistic about the future. If you're looking for a, a good maybe contrast with what you're thinking through, Kim Riddlebarger has done great work on, on millennialism. You can just Amazon Kim Riddlebarger, spelled exactly like it sounds, Gene, uh, and on, on millennialism. But if you want to be a post-millennialist, you're a sister in Christ, go for it. I actually read a really good book on postmillennialism by Keith Matheson called Postmillennialism and Eschatology of Hope. So if you would like to read a book on postmillennialism by a good scholar, uh, check that out. Just don't read the Bible. Apparently Kyle thinks that we should all be pessimists, but Keith Matheson thinks that we should be optimists. So there you go. And I, that is, and I'm not disclosing my position. I, I, I actually, I'm not sure. You, no, you made it abundantly clear. <laughs> I like how you are so determined to not get trapped on this question. With you the, just the keep beginning, yourself out there every I, time it comes. I up. do, I do. Um, this one comes from James in Ireland. Thanks so much for the podcast. Absolutely love it. I'm always recommending it to others. Question: Are you ever worried about how much influence you are having through the podcast? <laughs> James, James, well, that's the, a little conviction, sobering. the conviction hammer here. Thank you, James. Uh, that that uh, that Irish uh, uh, realism that we're getting here. Uh, do you ever sit back and think, "Wow, we better be correct about this because we have a gazillion listeners"? Nah. Oh gosh, I, I, not until now, James. Thanks, brother. <laughs> I, I actually, have, I, I've got, I've been thinking about this, and I've got a question for the two of you related to this because, for some reason, in preaching or in writing, I feel slightly different about this than I do in podcasting. Podcasting feels like it it opens itself more not not because we're not trying to say true things. We're trying to say true things, we're trying to teach, but this feels conversational to me. Like I feel like in this situation, I have the opportunity to say, Hey, I was wrong about that. Like I can come back next yeah. season and revisit well, you, you, a position. Hey, hey, yeah, which has I'm never happened. Said, Don't I'm stop. Say, I'm, I'm, you. Glad, I'm glad you felt the freedom because it ain't ever happened, brother. Yeah, yeah. theoretically. Um, like we, we want to teach. We want to be right about this. But I think what we're trying to embody here is the idea that theology is, I don't mean that it's in process because it's continually subjective or unknowable. It is objective and knowable. But yet we are moving subjects who are the ones who are in the process of learning the way of Jesus and learning the truths about God and the world and ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I get the sense that a podcast, because of the medium and platform, lends itself more towards we can demonstrate that we're still learning too. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 w- I think, yeah, to reassure you, James, in case you need it, we do take very seriously, mm-hmm. you know, the conversations that we have and, and, and the tone in which we have them. We do take that very seriously. And before we started the podcast, none of us was um, unaware of the implications of platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd had a, either a front row seat for it or some experience of it uh, ourselves before the podcast began. And it's meant that we've had conversations off air, you know, about um, how to handle particular topics or um, uh, things that were swirling around in our area of the church in conversation um, to handle them with care. Um, Influence is one of those things that's, you know, a huge double-edged sword. And so we're going to do our best to to be responsible to the, the real privilege of having people's ears without being manipulators or... Um, yeah or needing something from it that it just can't give. That's good. Michael, is justification by faith alone a first-tier essentials issue in your view? It seems that many evangelicals do think so, but if so, how does that affect how we view people in church history like Thomas Aquinas if this doctrine is an essential belief to be saved? Who wants to start on this one? I think you do. 
Well, I mean, I don't think justification by faith is an essential belief to be saved. What? <laughs> I've said this before. I'm not breaking new ground here. I don't think it is. I don't think you must re- believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone to be justified by faith alone. We're about to get canceled in these <laughs> no, streets. Like- <laughs> no, you, you know this. You know this practically. You know there are people who have experienced saving faith who by could faith not alone. Articul- who, by faith alone, I'm not denying that. Who, who, can, who, who, don't, who could not comprehend that doctrine or articulate that doctrine? No, nobody's, nobody's, oh my gosh. Go ahead, Jeff. Okay. You take so what I'm you're saying is that we are saved by faith alone, but yes. that not all who are saved by faith alone can articulate that truth. Or, or maybe even believe it. They might believe something to the contrary. Oh. I'm gonna have to think about that. There's no salvation but salvation by grace through faith in Christ, period. That's the only way to come to Jesus. What I'm saying is that there are some. Aquinas would be a great example of this. Are you telling me, JT, that you don't believe Thomas Aquinas is a Christian? (laughs) No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that— Well, he didn't believe— he stop, believe stop, stop, doctor- stop. Let me answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> now you feel like you're like in a little corner over there, my little guy. Uh, doctrine progresses over time. Our ability to articulate that doctrine progresses over time. All truth is God's truth always and forever, but the church is also working out those truths over decades, centuries, generations, as we begin to articulate those things in light of theological controversy. Justification by grace through faith is something that's always been true and was an importantly, uh, or a very important doctrine for Paul to teach to the Romans. That's what we're talking about in this season. Romans is a book about justification by grace through faith alone. The first and foremost example is who? Abraham. Therefore, we can all be Abraham's offspring because of what Christ has done for us through faith because of what he's accomplished, Right. That's I'm not what, denying that salvation is by grace through faith. I, I know you're not, but I'm saying like that's, a, that's an eternal truth that we find in the Bible. But Absolutely. the church has not always said it perfectly. And we're all products of the situation and the context and the controversies of which we're forced to engage with. Thomas Aquinas is an example, or Augustine would be another great example of this, of that wasn't the conversation of their day. The, the church had not clearly articulated its voice. And I don't mean just from a council, I just mean from kind of the, the overarching voice of what the church believes and taught. There has never been a controversy about justification by grace through faith before the Reformation. Therefore, I don't expect necessarily those scholars, theologians, and Christians to have been as clear as we now must be in light of doctrine progressing. That's good. Kyle? Okay. I mean, I want to say more, but we've got a hundred questions. We've got a lot of questions. Okay. Uh, This is from Kelly. Is there a resource that charitably explains what different Christian denominations believe? Like the differences between what Episcopals might believe and Methodists might believe. Just thinking realistically about the Christian churches I drive past on a daily basis, wondering what marks them as unique. Thank you, Kelly. I'll tell you, the best thing that you can do here is find confessional documents for churches. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's the best thing. Know the creeds, read the creeds, know the creeds, read the creeds, know the creeds, read the creeds. After you got the creeds down as your baseline, and you want to explore what are the differences between different traditions, confessional documents, statements of faith, uh, charters, those kinds of things. And then to know that the more free church you, tradition you move towards, uh, Baptist, uh, uh, Assemblies of God, uh, Church of Christ. Evangelical con- free. free. Ev- evangelical free. The more... There, there will be departures in each individual church from that statement of faith. For mainline traditions, they're a little bit more beholden to their books of order and their statements. It's how their, their, their polity, their governance works. But creeds first, statements of faith after that for each tradition. Uh, Liren, 
ask what is one of the your favorite things about your fellow co-host friends fro host how do they encourage you um i don't know that i have any sense of humor (laughs) (laughs) yeah sense of humor yeah sense of humor yeah i mean i would say humor insight encouragement we we have all had bad days where we've had to encourage one another Mm. everybody's quick to do that we don't get to do it. We don't do a lot of this. I just want to be clear. This podcast is not the full expression of our friendship. Mm-hmm. There are parts There are parts of our friendship you guys don't get. Uh, like, I love that we get to, we get to make a lot of it, a little, like a lot of it visible. There's a lot of it you don't see. And that I don't think we ever intend to show you that this is not the full nature of our friendship. I don't think any meaningful relationship is meant exclusively for public consumption. So yeah, encouragement, support, prayer insight yeah and also like the part that you do see like is real and i do actually love it the part that i can ask whatever question i want of jt and kyle and know that they're not going to be like oh you don't know that you know like there's never any of that uh, which i need i need that um and uh, it has served me both you know in the podcast and just in the in the private conversations that we've had it gives me a lot of peace of mind like before i have to teach somewhere if there are going to be a lot of people there to say hey i'm going to say this what do you guys think? And then they can be like, well, I wouldn't say that. Or no, that's good. You know, I mean, it's just, it gives you a lot more um, assurance before you have to stand up and teach something. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I, I'll just also add like some of my favorite things about the two of you are like not distinctively like Christian ministry mm-hmm. things. They're just like people <laughs> things. And I mean this like, like both like from a humor perspective, we enjoy each other. We like hanging out, but like there are things that I'm not going to say here because it's going to feel like I'm trying to flatter and I'm not just like these two people are good people. They've been in the depths of the darkness of, of, of my soul and, our, and like my family's life. Like we just love each other. Like mm-hmm. we're just friends and I'm grateful for the two of them. And it's yeah. not because of how they can teach or what they lead or what they write, but because we're just there for each other genuinely. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Mm-hmm. These two people have been there for me when I needed them. Same, same. Agreed. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World as Seminary President Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up his anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of his immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. 
As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. Brian, hey y'all, love the podcast. I've been continuing to think through Trinitarianism as y'all talk through it when it comes up. And I had a question along those lines. Is the son the only person of the Trinity we see embodied? I'm not even sure if it's okay to use that word in relation to the Trinity at this point. In the scriptures, do we see the Father and the Spirit take on a form? For example, is the one Isaiah sees on the throne in Isaiah 6, the Son? Is it the Father? Is it the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Outside of the incarnation, how do we apply good Trinitarian theology to moments when we see God take on embodied forms, like in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Revelation, or Angel more general Lord, forms, Melchizedek. like the burning... <laughs> Like the burning bush, pillar of cloud and fire, et cetera. It's a good question, Brian. What do you think, JT? Oh, I'm not going to get into this with you. We've done this. This is me covenanting with you to not argue. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think those are those are uh, manifestations, embodiments, incarnations of a pre-incarnate son. Why? Because the father is eternally unbegotten. So when the angel appears to Mary, is it Jesus telling Mary that Mary is going to be pregnant with Jesus? Yeah, why not? Do you think Jesus is hedged in by a body? Whoa, you do not think what she just said. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we do not have time. I just looked and saw like how many more questions we have. So JT does go. not get to have his Christmas present right now by talking about this. <laughs> no, but but Brian, the answer to your question is there are other forms of embodiment that are divine in the Bible. That is obvious. This, the dove, we've already mentioned that in reference to another question. But he eternally proceeds. Okay, thank you, JT. Um, the dove is one of those pillar of cloud and fire is obviously the presence of God. Are they theophanous pres- uh, uh, presences or Christophanies? We don't know. Do you think the um, Father is sent? Thank you, JT. For I'm asking comments. the question. Okay. Yes, or, yes nope. or no? Nope, nope. Is Keep the going. Father sent? Keep going. Does Keep the Father going. send himself? Kate, Kate <laughs> asked a really good question here. Kyle's afraid. I only recently came to understand that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually changes my reality now on this side of eternity. How should we think about the transformative power of the resurrection as it relates to the topic of besetting sin? Well, I'm going to say my formula. Um, The resurrection power of Christ means that you have been delivered from the penalty of sin. The resurrection power of Christ means you are currently being delivered from sin's power over you. And the resurrection power of Christ means that you will one day be delivered from sin's presence. You have been resurrected with Christ. You are being resurrected with Christ. You will one day be fully resurrected with Christ. Yeah, I love that. Um, one of the things I always think about with this is First John, how he writes in his letter. Uh, gosh, and, and keep in mind, he, he's rooting this in the gospel truth um, of the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus. But he says this, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Well, mm-hmm. John is saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. Mm-hmm. But if you do sin, you have an advocate. And it's Jesus Christ. Who is that advocate? It's the risen son, Jesus, who is at the right hand of God the Father, interceding and advocating on our behalf. So, Kate, what it means is because Christ rose again, conquered the grave, and is at the right hand of God the Father, you can choose to not sin. You can make bold, risky choices to choose God's better way of obedience, knowing that if you fail, guess what? You have an advocate with the Father, the G- Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Uh, Jeff, is it important that Adam was a historical figure? If so, why? JT? 
Yes, Jesus thought he was. Yeah, yes. I think that much of the New Testament's understanding of the doctrine of salvation is completely unraveled if Adam is not a historical figure. Uh, The entrance of sin into the world is a huge problem there. Uh, And more than that, image bearing. I don't think we can meaningfully account for the image of God if we have a developmental view of humanity and not a special historical creation of Adam and Eve. And I don't want to live in a world where image bearing is conditional on some sort of elevated mental status or competency or development. That's the world underneath the jackboot as... Hans Barthasar would have said. Uh, Taylor, so yes, you need Adam to be a historical figure. I believe that. Taylor, each of y'all's simple tips for studying scripture on your own. Jen, start us off. Uh, read repetitively and in different translations. So read Romans in the ESV, then read it in the CSB, then read it in the NIV, um, etc. When you're doing your Bible reading, read out loud and read slowly. <gasps> That's good. That's really good. You both took my stuff. I'm having to come up with something right now. I would say read covenantally. Put the whole story of the Bible together and the rest of the Bible begins to make sense. Good. Good. Lily, historically, God has always had masculine pronouns, but recently I've noticed gender neutral pronouns are being used more often, particularly in scholarly writings. Is our understanding of God as masculine or gender neutral an important aspect of our relationship with God? How does that impact our view of men and women being made in the image of God? Thanks. Lily, listening from Australia. Well, Thanks, Lily. Thanks for listening. And I don't want to say something stereotypical about Australia. I was going to say mate. something like, yeah, <laughs> put another yeah. shrimp on yeah. the Barbie. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Lily, I did not do that. Okay. That was Jen and JT. Uh, uh, is, is, God, is God revealing himself using masculine, masculine pronouns important? Must be, or he wouldn't have done it, right? Yep. I agree. Yeah. But I, again, I don't, yeah, I don't think but, you but have to. But we also want to say God is not male. Right. Because uh, he doesn't have a body. Uh, the church is spoken of in, in feminine pronouns. Does that mean that the church is a woman? No, I, you know, but I mean, it's telling us something about relationships. And so um, I think we should, I think we should try to speak of God the way the Bible speaks of God. I think we should try to speak of spiritual realities the way that the Bible speaks of spiritual yeah. realities, that as much as possible, we should align our use of language with scripture's use of language. But I also think that we ought not to read the fraughtness of our cultural moment around these issues into um, the Bible. I don't think we need, you know, like every time you see he or him for God, be like, oh, I can't believe that. That's so patriarchal. Mm. It's like, well, you know, it's an ancient document. Let it stand according to the time in which it's written and take from it the the truth that's underlying the words versus getting tangled around the words themselves, if you're in a delicate space with this. Yep, that's good. Um, Michaela, when reading Acts, it seems like the apostles go out of their way to lay hands on new converts and ensure they are specifically filled, baptized with the Holy Spirit in a way that causes them to prophesy, speak in tongues, etc. This seems like an additional step, not synonymous with water baptism. The apostles didn't seem to think that we are filled upon conversion, but rather manually through specific prayer. As believers today, are we missing something? Should we be doing this after we baptize someone? Am I lacking the Spirit if I haven't been converted with this procedure? Great question. Thank you, Michaela. Uh, I'll say this. You're not lacking in something. Um, the <laughs> Spirit uh, takes up indwelling at, at the point of conversion, and baptism is a rite and symbol of what God has done in your life, and it is significant. It is a sanctifying sacrament, meaning it, it helps conform us into the image of Christ, and it is a picture of the filling that we receive with the Holy Spirit. So why are the apostles doing this in Acts? Well, what you're finding in Acts is... Keep in mind, the, the genre of literature of Acts, uh, much of it is descriptive. You're finding descriptive accounts that should be, we should be 
not hesitant, but we should be careful about just immediately ruling them as prescriptive methods for anything. But beyond that, it's a unique moment. Uh, there, uh, many of the times it's clear that the apostle, who the apostles are addressing are people who have received water baptism but not heard of Pentecost. They don't know what's happened at Pentecost. They don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. They don't know the Holy Spirit has fallen. Keep in mind, they're not like, this is not at a time in which news travels fast. Okay, so the, when the apostles are telling them this information, they're praying to say, yes, the Holy Spirit has fallen, and they're going, we didn't hear about the Holy Spirit. They're going, well, let us tell you about it and pray that you would receive him. This is, I would say, one of those hinge moments in the history of redemption that isn't to be replicated for the church as a norm because we know what they were finding out for the first time, not because the apostles are telling us real time weeks, months after it happened, but because God's word has revealed it to us. So I want to be clear. I do not think you need a second baptism for the filling of the Holy Spirit. I do not think a second baptism is required for fullness of the Holy Spirit. I do think we can pray that we would experience a greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit, uh, a greater experience of the Holy Spirit's work and what the Holy Spirit does, but I do not think a second baptism is required, and I don't think that's what Acts is demonstrating. I think it is showing you a very thin slice in the history of redemption, not a norm for the church. Also, we did a whole season on Acts. If you want to go back and listen, you can hear our thoughts on those passages. We did. Okay, Taylor, in Isaiah 9, 6, Jesus Christ, the Son, is referred to as both Son and as Everlasting Father. How does this work out in the Trinitarian community? Is there a lending of their titles? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So I think the confusion here is, if this is a Messianic prophecy talking about Jesus, why is Jesus referred to here as Everlasting Father, right? Isn't that a title that would be ascribed to God the Father? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those sticky, I'll just be honest, it's kind of sticky. I get asked this question every single time that I teach the Institute on Christology and the differentiation between this one God who is three persons. It's also important, though, that we don't just emphasize the three persons, but the one God. Jesus in John 10 says, I and the Father are one. Now, that's not meant to say that they're the same person. They're not. They're three different persons. And so what, what Isaiah is trying to communicate to us is that God is coming. He will be Emmanuel, mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. He's saying God is coming to redeem and restore his people. I'm not saying that Isaiah is being sloppy with his Trinitarian language, but again, both with progressive doctrine and also progressive revelation in scripture, we're able to learn more specifically about how we ought to speak about God. Is Jesus the Father? No, the Father is the Father, and the Father has sent the Son to be his presence with us by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you just say a bunch of Trinitarian terms fast, you confuse people and you get out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Is that what you would say, Kyle? Yes. The The only other thing that I would say about that everlasting father is I'm curious whether or not Abraham is using that and basically like a new rep. You mean like Isaiah? Basically Isaiah. A, I'm, excuse me. Yes, Isaiah. Isaiah is Abraham. using as a new Abraham. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's, that's good. What I I've not thought of that before. I like that. That's um, probably that's better. That's real good. That's yeah. reading covenantally, JT. But oh. Which is why I'm going to keep doing that. I should be reading <laughs> repeatedly in order to be a better Bible reader and slowly and out loud. Um, the only reason is because I've been toying around with the idea that Isaiah 9, 6, those titles that are used there are actually shorthand kind of taglines for different leaders in Israel's history. Mm-hmm. Like Mighty yeah. Counselor isn't 
best understood to be like a counselor, like we understand, but as basically a military strategist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think about David, I think about Solomon, I think about all the wonderful counselors. I, I just, I think there could be, I think those titles there could be shorthand taglines for heroes of the faith in Israel that Isaiah is mentioning in a way that's more poetic than just straightforward. I like Anyways. that. Uh, Christy, in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is often Christophany. Christy. Uh, Christy. Christy. Is this a Christy Christophany? Um, uh, in the Old Testament, <laughs> the Macy, angel. Macy English submitted this. Yeah, I know. Christy, you and, just <laughs> seem like a very smart, upstanding person, and I'm okay. grateful for your support. <laughs> in Matthew 120, is this also Christophany? Be, okay, I'm going to give you 30 seconds on the clock for real, and I'm not going to respond. How about just one word answers only? Okay. Is Matthew one twenty? This is just for everybody to know. This is the appearance of the angel of the Lord mm-hmm. to Joseph. Okay, the angel of the Lord also appears to Mary, Mary. Mm-hmm. who would be the. Just as a reminder, Mary, the mother of the Son of God, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jen, is this a Christophany? No. JT, is this a Christophany? Maybe. <laughs> Kyle, tiebreaker. Highly, un- highly unlikely. Woo! No, is my answer. All right. For more on Christophanies, listen to every single episode we've ever done. <laughs> hey, Jen, is Jesus the true and better angel of the Lord? Okay. <laughs> we got to keep moving, guys. We got a lot of questions. Sarah asked, how should Protestants read the early fathers if their leanings are more Catholic? Uh, I think by Roman Catholic, probably how this develops. But should we ignore their beliefs on Mary or communion? Like, JT, if somebody was like, hey, man, I can't read Augustine, you know, he just gets it wrong on some of this stuff. Yeah, you're never going to read a theologian that you agree with everything about. You're going to read mm-hmm. theologians that you disagree with significant issues on. That's great. Mm-hmm. You should read them and you should read profitably, but you should also read discerningly. That's so good. Yeah, that's great. Christine, references are made to the gift of tongues throughout the New Testament. There seems to be two types, one of which is speaking a known language and the other, which is a bit less clear, some sort of tongues of angels or heavenly language. Paul says in Corinthians not to forbid tongues. Why is this not commonly exercised in our circles? Are we missing out on some sort of joyous fellowship with the Spirit by not pursuing this, at least in personal prayer, if not in community with other saints? Christine, thank you for your question. (laughs) It's a really good one. It's very big, and I want to give you an answer, but I want to say this. What I'm about to say is not representative of how we all feel on this show. Uh, This is not the official position of Knowing Faith or the official position of any of the churches we serve at. I can speak for myself here, so I just want to be clear. I am speaking for me, and I don't want to put JT and Jen in a bad spot. I'm happy to – I I can speak for me also also. on this. Oh, really? Everybody will speak to this? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That Mm -hmm. is – that blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to br- you have to give a brief answer on it. Okay, my brief answer is I don't think that there is a difference between the tongues that we find in Acts two at Pentecost and the tongues that Paul is regula- regulating in First Corinthians. I think we think that because of the uh, we've been told that in Pentecost we're finding the expression of the tongues as a missional language. They're hearing everything in their own mm-hmm. language. But the language that's being directed is not being directed outwards. It's being directed upwards. It is a language of praise and worship, and it's being made intelligible by the Holy Spirit. This is why I think Paul is regulating the use of tongues in the church and saying, listen, it's not good just for outsiders. It's not primarily outward directed. It's primarily upward directed. And it's not primarily for unbelievers, though I think sometimes the Spirit illuminates unbelievers to understand what's being said. So what I'm saying is I don't think there's a difference between the two, 
applications of the gift. I think that people can pray in tongues in a personal praise and prayer language. I think that would be acceptable if done in an orderly fashion in the worshiping life of the church in a way that is in submission to the scriptural support of it and the elders of that church. Uh, and I, But I don't know that we're missing something on not practicing it. So that's where I'm at. JT? Yeah, I think I'd actually basically say that. I think one of the reasons that most churches don't practice this is it's often practiced in a disordered fashion. And that's really Paul's main point, specifically in 1 Corinthians, is that we have ordered worship services so that people can come to know Jesus. And often speaking in tongues in some circles is is actually kind of a disordered or can almost feel like the... I, I've actually never experienced this. I've seen it in people, uh, not in person is what I'm saying, but it's, it's, uh, it's almost like they can't be stopped. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. That's not what should be happening. This should be something that's done ordered. This person goes first, this person goes second. And if you're doing it in a way that is disordering the congregation, then you shouldn't. And I just think there's probably a little bit of a concern in pastors or churches about there being disorder. And so perhaps we aren't pursuing this the way that we should. Ultimately, the gift is not tongues. The gift is the Holy Spirit. And every church should desire the fullness of the Holy Spirit uh, because he is God. He is worthy of worship, adoration, praise, affection, and we should want him with us doing whatever he desires to do in our congregations and in the world. My turn? Yeah, your turn. Um, I think those are good answers. And I um, think that I personally on this lean more towards saying that tongues is just known languages. So I can't say that I have done enough work on it to say that with thus saith the Lord, um, but that's where I lean on it. But I say that as someone who knows people who have a practice of speaking in tongues who I love and care about and don't think are stupid or crazy. So uh, that's where I am on it. Look at that. We did that very respectfully with one another. Yeah. Matt, can you give a run through of some differences between dispensationalism and covenant theology? Are they in direct conflict with one another or can they be harmonized? Okay, Here's my one line on dispensational and covenant theology. I think dispensationalism is uh, a historic—I think it's a history with a theology, and I think covenant theology is a theology with a history, meaning I think that both of them are both trying to look at the history of redemption and and explain it. I think dispensationalists put a premium on the um, chronology and history of redemption. And by history, I don't mean— just the broad story, I mean the actual details. I think covenant theologians place an emphasis on the broad categories. And I think that's often why they miss one another. We we have recommended before, JT and I have recommended uh, Gentry and Wellam's work on kingdom through covenant as if you're looking for what is the closest thing to a synthesis, I think Peter Gentry and Steve Wellam's work is I don't know that they would, they wouldn't call it a synthesis, would they, JT? No, I mean, they would put this, this is a, for them, like a new category. Yeah, but it is highly conversant with both progressive dispensationalism and contemporary reform covenant theology. So I'd go check out Peter Gentry and Steve Wellam's book. They have a big one called Kingdom Through Covenant and a much smaller, more accessible one that I can't remember the name of, but Peter Gentry, Steve Wellam, you can find it. It's the smaller of the two. Julia, lately I've had real difficulty accepting an impassable view of God. We're hitting all of them today, uh, especially when considering the suffering of Jesus on the cross. It's hard for me to think that the Father, so intimately united with the Son, did not also suffer out of compassion for him. Did God feel nothing as he watched his Son die? The last thing I gather from the incarnation crucifixion is that the Father is apathetic. So my understanding of impassibility must be off. But I don't understand how God, who is capable of love, could be incapable of suffering or emotion. And I would love to hear your thoughts. Kyle, go ahead. No, Kyle and I disagree about this. I need the last word, not the first word. I'm not going to say, I don't want to get into the whole impassibility 
I know that's your question, but talking about the cross in particular, I wouldn't say that here, here, I actually want to intensify this a little bit, Julia. I actually don't think that the father is apathetic towards the son on the cross. I think the father is forsaking the son of God on the cross. He is pouring out his holy judgment against sin. And that is you're making a face. That's that's penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah, but son not upon is, not not just upon the son, but upon the person of Jesus of Nazareth. You can't yeah, have well, you can't have a distinction like that within trinitarianism because you you would not have one I'm will. Not, I'm not using it like that. I meant the son of God Jesus Christ. I believe the father well, then is the son is pouring out wrath upon himself as well because God has one will. I knew we, I knew this was going to happen to us. That matters or else we're not trinitarians anymore. The Son of God is absorbing the wrath of God on the cross. Yes or no? His own wrath? The wrath of God or God the Father? The wrath of God. Yeah, that's true. So I don't actually think it's best to understand God feeling nothing when Jesus is dying on the cross. I share your concerns, Julia, about doling the language that's used regarding God's emotional life. That's about all that I can say. If you feel like I don't really know how to explain that, I would say I agree. I feel I'm I'm curious about it as well. It seems like it's clear in scripture that language that we would often talk about as a part of emotional life, like love, is used with reference to God. And the church has historically said that language is accommodationist language because we couldn't possibly understand and that God is impassable because him being passable would jeopardize his immutability, his inability to change. And I am not as, uh, I'm not as convinced that that's the case as read I Wesley, was. read Wesley Hill's article, the impassable God in first things. I think that's the best shortest article I read about this. I'm just going to read a brief paragraph. He's arguing that the very doctrine of impassibility is actually what makes the cross effective. And so here is, he says at the end, he says, because the Christian God is radically transcendent, therefore God can take human nature to himself without displacing it or destroying it. And because the transcendent God has taken human nature to himself, the suffering which God undergoes in that nature, the nature of humanity, to himself, the suffering that God undergoes in that nature is redemptive rather than simply passive victimhood or solidarity with us because it is God who suffers in Christ. That suffering is not simply the suffering of a fellow sufferer who understands, but is instead the suffering of the one who is able to end all suffering by overcoming it in resurrection, ascension, and immortality. That's one of the best paragraphs I've ever read on the topic. It's good. Good. Um, Alyssa, per scripture, is baptism presented as being part of salvation? Or put another way, is baptism where your sins are forgiven? No. I mean, the thief on the cross is the typical place we point to to say that baptism does not affect your salvation because he dies without being baptized. And Christ says that he will be with him this day in paradise. Is that a bad example, guys? I think it is. Uh, Let me tell you why. He dies in all likelihood before the death of Jesus. Um, In some sense, he's an Old Testament believer and the promises of God. He does not believe in the resurrection. He's not seen the resurrection. He's not heard of the resurrection or the ascension of the son of God. So I'm not saying that it's a terrible example. I'm saying I'm not sure that it's the best. He's, he is not believing in the same thing that we are. However, what's important is we need to begin to see salvation as a redemptive miracle that everything happens in some sense simultaneously, but also then in logical order. So you have, what must we do to be saved in Acts chapter two, repent, believe, and be baptized. And in a lot of ways, those are three different things. Repent, 
step away from your sin and walk towards Jesus. Believe, believe upon the Son of God who died for your sins and be baptized. That's a logical order, one, two, three. But we also need to make sure we see those things are as the same thing. The, the New Testament does not know of a Christian who's not baptized. Mm-hmm. And we need to emphasize baptism as not a part of salvation because it saves you, but because it's what Christians do once they've been saved. It's good. Like it. Steven, thanks for the J.L. Packer essay. Uh, J.L. Packer. Packer. I love that guy. <laughs> J.I. Packer. It's been a long day, Kyle. Uh, yes. uh, early in the essay, Packer defines unconditional election as God's free, sovereign, unconditional choice for sinners, as sinners to be redeemed. He then goes on to define limited atonement as the redeeming work of Christ had as its end and goal the salvation of the elect. Is there an easy way to understand how this can be a free choice for sinners and yet you are also elect? Yes, there is. And Kyle knows it. So, no, no, you say it. Yes, yeah, so, uh, Jonathan Edwards, Luther uh, speak about this in what sound like contradictory terms, but they're the same. They talk about the freedom of the will or the bondage of the will. And basically what we're saying is human wills always do what they believe to be the most beautiful, perfect, right, good thing. In sin, in our, and not by sin, I don't mean action. I mean state. We always choose death. Dead people always choose to be dead. But if we're ever presented with the option of being alive, we would choose it. And that's what we believe happens at regeneration. Jesus reveals himself to us through the power of the Holy Spirit and takes us from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of life, the kingdom of, of uh, hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And that's a genuine choice because that choice is irresistible because a dead person will always choose life. It's good. Good. Austin, hope I'm not too late to this. What advice would you give your 25-year-old self? or a 25-year-old patron with a desire to pastor? Let's answer that one. Um, A 25-year-old patron with a desire to pastor, what advice would I give you? I would say get yourself rooted in a healthy local church where the pastors have a vision to raise up pastors. Working kids ministry. That's That's another good working kids ministry. Uh, Be in a healthy church. Dig deep wells as early as possible in terms of your theological understanding, your biblical understanding. Do you have anything else? Jen? Advice I would give to my 25-year-old self would be simmer down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. TJ, what would your recommendation be regarding the use of outside curriculum in your church class studies? How would you balance using outside resources as opposed to training up your own teachers and developing your own materials? Oh, I know who this TJ is. This is uh, it's our friend TJ. Oh, TJ. it's teacher guy. TJ. Hey, TJ. TJ, what would your recommendation be regarding the use of outside curriculum in your class studies and materials? I mean, if you're writing it, I want to use it. You know what I'm saying? Um, How would you balance using outside resources as opposed to training up your own teachers and developing your own materials? Does anyone on this podcast have a lot of outside resources Mm, that churches typically use? Who has thoughts on this? I know. It's me. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I think that the answer to this question depends on who you have on your bench. Do you have people who are capable of writing curriculum? And I don't mean people who are willing I mean, people who are capable. And so uh, writing curriculum, I always say this is the hardest thing that I do. And so just proceed with caution before you decide to start writing your own stuff. And most of us will start by using someone else's stuff. And as we refine our sense of what we want to accomplish with the curricula that we're using, we may decide that we want to write our own stuff to get to the learning outcome that we want specifically. But usually the first step is to use what someone else did to springboard to potentially writing your own stuff. There you go. Carrie asks, why does it say in Romans 5.15, many died by the trespasses of Adam versus everyone all? Don't we all experience death and it's only through faith and allegiance to Christ that we can be born and experience true life again? Interestingly, almost all main translations have the many. The podcast truly increases my wonder of the gospel. Thank you for teaching the word. I like that she checked the other translations. 
Okay. I don't know that I've thought about this. I have a little. Okay. I think don't don't um, don't overplay the point. I think that it's a contrast that's being made, yeah. and it's it, you know it's it's a it's just another way of using um, hyperbole or um, superlatives. You know, it's you could say all are done, or you could say the many and the few, and the idea is the same. So I wouldn't get overly tangled in the specific word choice and assign more meaning to it than is there that's or less. Yeah, I think that's good. Yeah, I think that. Huh. Okay, I'm gonna have to think about that one more. Um, Aaron, for, that's a good question, Carrie, and good homework mm-hmm. on it too. Yeah. Um, Aaron, first off, this is by far my favorite podcast. Love you guys. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, <laughs> what book of the Bible do you think you've read, reread the most, and what is it about that book that keeps drawing you back? For me, it's Colossians. I think the cultural moment we're experiencing is, in some sense, similar to what Colossae was walking through. And Paul's answer is a high Christology: put Jesus where He belongs above all things, because that's where He is. A uh, book I've reread the most, I would say, is James because it's short and I've taught it a lot. But book I want to read the most is Genesis. Okay. Yeah, it's going to be Ephesians for me for sure, 100%, no doubt. And the thing that pulls me back is union with Christ. Mm. Natalie, do you affir- do you re- all reject or affirm the concept of autotheos? Currently reading Arminian Theology by Roger Olson in order to have a more well-rounded understanding. I just so appreciate this podcast. It has truly depend, uh, deepened my faith and pushed me to learn and grow. So grateful that God put you all together. Autotheos is basically God of himself. It's the self-existence of God. Um, I don't think any of us probably have like a position paper written on autotheos, I'm guessing. I wrote a chapter on the self-existence of God. Does that count? I think so. Is, <laughs> it different? is autotheos, JT, different from aseity? I don't, I don't think it's that different. I've actually, interestingly enough, never heard this word, word used quite this way. I'm not saying that it hasn't. It just means I'm still a learning theologian. But like okay. it, it does mean self-existing or like even when we're thinking about the scriptures, they're self-attesting. Like we're not looking for something outside of it to attest to it. That's certainly true about God. I, I mean, if it's defined the way we're defining it here, I don't know how a Christian could reject the self-existence of God. That's the point of Godness. It seems like autotheos whenever I was looking this up, because I had the same thing. I don't know if it's the usage here. And and I just want to be clear, sister, I don't think there's a problem with your question. I just think it's a context thing. Right. Um, I think you're asking a good question. It's just it's just a bullet point, right? But the concept of autotheos seems like it's been mostly locked up in a conversation regarding the self-existence of Christ, JT, that the question mm. of whether or not the Son of God can be properly said to be ase since he it is eternally begotten from God the Father. Yeah, so Augustine addresses this when he in his commentary in sermons on John five twenty six that God that God the Father grants life to the Son and life in Himself and makes a big deal about that clause that the Son has not been granted life by the Father as if He doesn't exist in Himself. He's been granted life in Himself, which does mean that He is self existent and ase or entirely existing in Himself in in the life of the Triune God. One of my friends from my PhD program, he ended up leaving our PhD program because he was smarter than most of us and did his PhD at the University of St. Andrews, I believe. His name's Tyler Whitman. He's now a professor of theology at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. You might want to look this article up. It's called Calvin, Classical Trinitarianism. Yes, I was looking at this. This is what I read in preparation for this question. But yes, I found it to be helpful too. Tyler's really good on this Say it again so that she gets this. Calvin, Classical Trinitarianism and the Aseity of the Son. It's in Credo Magazine. Yeah, this was the line that I felt like was most helpful here for me. 
when Calvin affirmed that the son is Ata Theos, God of himself, he denied that the son possesses aseity as he possesses it from the father. Rather, the son simply possesses aseity because he possesses the same essence as the father. That's right. Such a conclusion is nothing more than an implication of a strict ruled Trinitarian grammar. As God, and thus according to his essence, the son is Ata Theos. As son, and thus according to his person, the son is from the father. But the son is neither from the father, according to his essence, nor Ata Theos, According to his person. Yep. So basically, Calvin is not rejecting eternal generation. He's just saying, I don't, I object to the way that it's often talked about. Mm-hmm. There's a lot here. It's a really good question. You're digging into some deep wells. Uh, this one put me in a homework position for that question. <laughs> uh, Kelly, where do you think the line is for having a proper place of spiritual authority? Ooh, that's a good question. So yeah. let me see if I can say this briefly. Um, Kelly, that's a wisdom issue. That's depending heavily on where you are and who the players are in the conversation. Um, And uh, obviously you don't want to be, I hope I'm understanding your question correctly. You don't ever want to submit yourself to uh, anything that is not God honoring, right? So a person who has a title of spiritual authority, but has not the character to go with it is not someone you owe your, your submission to. But that can be really hard to discern, right? And so I think um, blind submission to anyone in authority is a recipe for disaster and you should be innocent as doves and wise as serpents with regard to all things. And this is one of those things to be paying attention to your leaders and making sure that they are people who are after the things of God. A few more questions here. Emily, I may be too late in submitting this. You're not. But I'm wondering all y'all's thoughts on the movement of evangelicals to embrace Torah observance and return to keeping the Old Testament law. I got to tell you, Emily, I have not heard of this movement, but I'm going to follow through on your question. Oh, you have? Okay. In discussing this with a friend who's being drawn to this new, old way of life, my thoughts have been on Paul's comments about the law in Romans. She brought up 2 Peter 3, 16 through 17, Peter's comments about Paul's teaching being misunderstood and misapplied to leading to lawlessness. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Okay, Jen, I'm not familiar with this. But Jan, you've you've heard about this. Well, I'm familiar with, um, I don't know that like a full-blown move to do this, but I am familiar with people who are um, fascinated with Old Testament practice and observance and thinking that Mm. if they are to embrace it, it will deepen their experience of Christianity. Um, And it came up a lot when I was teaching through Hebrews. And that would be what I would say is read the book of Hebrews. Um, I think it's going to really press on this idea that um, there's something in the old ways that we need to preserve for the purpose of a full uh, relationship. And in particular, I'm speaking of ceremonial law, which would be, obviously, I would say we should keep the moral law. Um, but ceremonial sure. law, if we understand it as a shadow and a type, as I believe that we should, then that throws into question why we would continue to practice something that is um, is fulfilled in Christ. Good. Kennedy asks, if we are continually being interceded for by God the Son, are those who were spoken to by God in the Old Testament being spoken to from God the Son or God the Father? The New Testament seems to suggest that we only have access to the Father through the Son, but I often hear people talk about God's Word spoken to the prophets as coming from God the Father. How should we think about the Trinity's function in the Old Testament, specifically concerning God speaking to men? Oh, if only we only had somebody on here whose dissertation was on divine speech and Trinitarianism. <laughs> yeah, we, sh- we should have somebody do that. Yeah, so I actually, that's that was kind of the whole 
whole point of the dissertation, Kennedy, is is the idea that often in the Old Testament, we think of God the Father as a speaker. And in the New Testament, we think of God the Spirit as a speaker. And the point is, is God is a speaker. And God God always speaks as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'd really encourage you to read John 13 through John 17. It's there where Jesus is, is talking to his disciples uh, in the upper room discourse. And he gives some of the best language as it relates to how the triune God speaks. Uh, you can think of Hebrews chapter 1 as well. God, God has spoken in these last days through his son, but then you also have John fifteen twenty six that says that, that the Holy Spirit is eventually coming and he will speak that which he hears me and the Father saying. So anytime we talk about God's speech, we're talking about the Trinitarian God speaking, not just a specific person. God the Father is a speaker, God the Son is a speaker, and God the Spirit is a speaker. And the Father speaks through the Son by the Spirit. Good. Love it. Tracy asks, what recommendations or resources can you suggest to help women who want to grow their skills in leading small group discussion? I'll take this one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know that I have a resource to recommend. I think if you were to um, reach out to your local BSF chapter, they probably have some training documents that they would they would share with you, uh, BSF or CBS. Um, I think what's in view here, Tracy, would be the idea that um, leading small group discussion for women can be a little like herding cats sometimes <laughs> because um, there's just an impulse to perhaps talk about, I mean, this is, this is common knowledge among like single gender spaces is there's an impulse to talk about our stories perhaps more than whatever the topic at hand is. is. So I would say go to the people who've been doing this a long time. Go to Precept or BSF or CBS and say, what's your secret sauce um, for helping training your leaders and how can I get access to that and see if they won't share it with you. We, we have some stuff through the Bible study at the village, but I'm trying to think if there's access to it. I'll have to look into that. The only one I was going to mention, Jen, are you familiar with Orlando, what's his name? Orlando Sayers' book, Iron Sharpened Iron, Leading Bible-Oriented Small Groups That Thrive? No, that sounds great. I read it years ago, and he does profiles of different people, yeah, like in, in your small group. groups, yeah, and he kind of works you through like them. the talker so, and the one who won't ever say a yeah, word and all that. Yeah, we yeah, do all that in our training, but I've never seen it in a book. So I think Tracy, if you were going to go find something I know is accessible, that book you can get on Amazon. Iron sharpens iron by Orlando Sayer. I read it years ago, and it was it was helpful. Hey, that's it. This episode was called Q and A for days because there was a lot. There was of a Q- lot. This might have to be. This might have to be two episodes in the future. But (laughs) listen, we are so thankful. We have the best audience in podcasting. I believe it. I believe that too. And and we've got some incredible stuff uh, coming for you guys in the spring. Very excited. Um, And uh, just want to say thank you. Thank you for your support. Thank you for being a great listener. Thank you for being a supporter of the show. There is cool stuff on the horizon. Um, that you will find out before anyone else does. If you're listening to this after the fact, um, you're hearing it in January, you could have heard it in December. Other cool stuff behind the scenes at patreon.com slash knowingfaith. I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, But I also want to say thank you to our our season sponsor. If you think now might be the time to pursue more theological training, log on to sbts.edu slash explore. This online diagnostic tool considers the theological training you have now, factors in what more you want to accomplish, and explores the Southern Seminary degrees that will prepare you to do even more. Whether you're exploring the idea of theological training, or you feel called to full-time ministry, you can get personalized guidance at sbts.edu slash explore. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. If you benefited from the podcast, leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. We will see you in mid-January for the launch of Season 8 of Knowing Faith, Grace, 
and peace.